All right, good morning and happy 4th of July weekend. Hope you guys are all having a great weekend. Um, this past week has been a significant week for me and for Peter. Um, Tuesday was a, a very special day um, because it was Canada Day. <laughs> and something else happened that day too. Oh yeah, Peter started working here full time on Canada Day. <laughs> We, uh, we had an encouraging evening last Sunday at our annual meeting. You heard about our new nominating committee members and a uh, new elder who you'll meet soon. And we approved the, the budget for this fiscal year and we're very excited about what God is going to do throughout this year. Uh, it has been really encouraging for me to be able to sit with Peter this week and just talk and talk and talk about the specific goals and objectives that we now have and are, and are setting in motion now that he's on board. Um, this truly is a significant time for us as a church. Uh, years of seeking God and brainstorming and planning and strategizing have brought us to this point of taking this vision to the next level of implementation, and that encourages me tremendously. Uh, we're becoming the church that God desires us to be. We're being true to his word. We're following his voice. We're setting out to make some essential changes. We're setting specific strategies in motion, and we're trusting God to faithfully provide and direct along the way as he has all along. I want to encourage you to start this fiscal year with prayer, with confidence, and with participation. Um, every plan that's being set in motion is going to require our prayers in order for it to succeed. Um, this vision can only succeed by God's power and not just by our power. And so let's call on him regularly to direct and to empower us. Every step of faith that we're taking calls for our confident trust in God's competence, in God's ability. And all of this calls for our participation. And as every new challenge is presented, ask God to show you your part in his plan here. As these new initiatives require resources, ask God to show you your part in this financially. A small increase of 7.5% to our annual budget is a small investment to make for the impact that we'll see having two new staff members and, and watching this vision roll out. And, um, and you'll get to meet our new youth pastor that's going to start in the fall. You'll meet him next week when he's here. God is faithful, and he will continue to be faithful. I ask that you pray for us as a staff and as elders and ministry leaders over the summer. Be praying as we implement the things that we've been talking about for a very long time. Um, pray that we do the right things first and that we do them well. Pray for a deep sense of unity among the staff. Uh, we're all committed to seeing this church fulfill its potential. And God has brought these specific people together to carry out his specific purpose for us right now. Um, praise him for his faithfulness to us. This has been just an amazing ride. So, I hope you've been able to keep up with this uh, frantic pace that we're setting as we fly through the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings. Uh, two verses down, <clears throat> the entire rest of the sermon to go, and it's only July 6th. I was chuckling as I sent another letter to the group who's reading through the Bible in a year uh, here at this church. I was dwelling on the fact that in the past six months, we've read approximately 388,000 words in our journey through the Bible. Um, that's one way of getting into God's word. But in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at basically two verses and really just a few words in those two verses over the span of one month. 
So there are different ways to go at it, but uh, I really do hope that you're enjoying this in-depth study that we're doing right now as much as I am. Um, from the, the start of this study, I've been motivated to truly understand this first sermon that Jesus delivered. This is, as I've said before, Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking. God came near to his creation and he had some things to say. And this passage in Matthew outlines the first of those things that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords wanted to share with his creation. It is well worth the close look And so we looked at the first two Beatitudes together. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We talked about spiritual poverty and our need for a savior. We talked about the way Jesus started his message by addressing the need for humility in his followers. We talked about what Jesus meant by those who mourn. Referring to those who grieve the sin in their lives and the sin in this world. We talked last Sunday about God's idea of comfort. We saw this beautiful picture of one of God's children grieving their sin and how God calls them near to himself to comfort them through his embrace. What a gracious, gracious God we have. We've seen a progression in the Beatitudes. Those who acknowledge their spiritual dependence on God become those who grieve their sin, the sin that keeps them from being able to do anything about the salvation of their own spirits. The realization of that poverty leads us to grieve the sin in our lives, and that godly grief leads to God pouring out his comfort on us by drawing us near to himself. We've been promised happiness throughout We've been promised the riches of the kingdom of God and the blessing of his personal, intimate comfort. These are the words that Christ wants us to hear. This is the love that he wanted to communicate to us. It's deep and it's rich and it's generous. And that's why I'm enjoying this study so much. I'm, I am the beneficiary of these blessings. You are the beneficiaries of these blessings. So let's keep digging here. And see what we discover. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, um, just go ahead and put your hands up, and our ushers will get you one that you can follow along in during the service. But turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to move now to the next beatitude. It's found in verse 5 of Matthew 5. It's a short verse once again, but it is a deep verse as well. Even more than the last two Beatitudes, this one stunned me with a word that I had, I, I've known, but I've been missing its meaning my whole life. Um, now, not all of the Beatitudes will be like these first three, but digging into this Beatitude really took me on a journey, and I want to take you there this morning. So here we go. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy, successful at life by God's standards are the meek. And once again, Jesus is making a statement about success and happiness that flies right in the face of the culture around him, including, or maybe especially, the culture of the religious people of his day. In anticipation of the coming Messiah, the Jewish people were looking for a conquering hero who would overtake their oppressors. They were looking for an earthly king, one with power and authority. 
They were looking for someone who would lead with power and restore their reign in the world. And up to this point, the people had seen some pretty impressive displays of power from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus had been healing the sick and casting out demons. People from far and wide had come to Jesus, bringing with them all of their sick and oppressed, and Jesus had healed them all. His fame was spreading like wildfire. People were taking notice. Religious leaders were starting to ask whether this could be the prophesied Messiah. Jesus clearly had the kind of power that they had been expecting in their Messiah. But then he opened his mouth. And I think they expected him to say something like this. Blessed are the religious. Blessed are those who practice strict religious behavior. Blessed are those who follow the law down to the last letter. Blessed are those who have reason to be proud of their behavior. Blessed are those who do less wrong than others. Blessed are those who look and act right Blessed are those who are confident, assertive, ambitious, powerful. Blessed are those who conquer and overthrow. But instead, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Now, obviously, his words created some problems for the religious leaders. I would imagine Jesus instantly put doubt in their minds. This clearly could not be their awaited savior. Rome could never be overthrown by the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek. That's not the stuff kingdoms are made of. Blessed are the meek. Let's admit something. This doesn't just present a problem for the religious people who lived lived in Jesus' time. This creates a problem for us today as well. Do we live in a society that values meekness? I don't think so. You typically don't climb the corporate ladder on the strength of your meekness. You don't succeed here at much by demonstrating meekness. Promotions aren't awarded to the meek. Advantage isn't gained by the meek. Wars aren't won by the meek. Not many people in this room even are working at developing meekness in their lives the way that Christ defines meekness. Yet we see a call to be meek throughout the Bible. Let's look at some examples. This is Paul writing in Colossians 3 verse 12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he goes on. Meekness is something that we're to work to incorporate into our character. Meekness is a value in God's kingdom. So people like Paul wrote about the need for it in our lives and in our personalities. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul's pleading with the church and he sets up his plea by referring to the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He wanted to speak to them the way Christ would, meekly and gently. The prophets spoke of Jesus as being meek. Zechariah spoke of the arrival of the king, meek and riding on a donkey, referring to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem before he suffered. Then Jesus even said this of himself, and this is a beautiful invitation by Christ. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek, 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus was meek, and we're being directed in the Bible to be the same, to be meek. Now, obviously, we need to understand what we're reading. What does it mean to be meek? Well, let's confirm that with a clear dictionary definition of the word meek. This is what meekness looks like according to Merriam-Webster. To be meek means this. It means enduring injury with patience and without resentment. It means to be deficient in courage and spirit. It means not violent or strong. It means quiet, gentle, and easily imposed on, submissive. It means docile. That's the definition we're working with of meek. And I have a real problem with this. This is our understanding of the word meek. So let me speak to my fellow men here for a minute. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, and your mind goes to words like weak, quiet, gentle, submissive, and docile, what happens in your mind? What kind of emotion does that create? Do you sense any sort of contradiction forming here? I've ignored this for years. I've never been able to settle the tension in my emotions when I think about how much I want to be like Jesus, but then I'm faced with the instruction in God's word to be meek. And instead of digging into this understand, and to understand it better, I've, I've just ignored it. I, I settled for not understanding something that causes me a lot of confusion and tension. Now listen, if there's something in the word of God that you don't see clearly enough to fully understand, but you know you're supposed to do it, find out what it means. Find out what it means. This meekness thing is essential to our character, to becoming more and more like Christ. We have to know what this means. In Romans 8, Paul says that we are more than conquerors. But isn't Jesus saying here that we're supposed to be docile? In 2 Timothy 1, Paul says that God gave us a spirit of power. But isn't Jesus saying that we're supposed to be deficient in courage and spirit? That's what the word meek means in English, right? So which one is it? Courageous or afraid? Strong or weak? Conquering or submissive? Something's wrong with our definition of the word meek. And we can't just settle for not really knowing what it means. And so once again, I've been on a journey of discovery here. The Greek word that has been translated into the English word meek is not what we might think it is. And that's a great relief to me. The Greek word being spoken by Jesus here is praus, praus. And the closest English words to it are meek, mild, humble, or gentle. But its meaning is deeper than any one of those words can convey. And the best way for us to come to understand this word is to see how it was used in context. And then we'll look at a visual demonstration of what it means to be meek. And this is really inspiring to me, and I hope it is to you too. First of all, how is the word meek used in conversation by Greek-speaking people in Jesus' time? Well, here are some examples. A soothing medicine was referred to as a meek medicine. Now, that's certainly not where we typically use the word meek. 
Um, Ibuprofen has never been described as meek as far as I can remember. The society Jesus lived in had a variety of medicines. Some medicine had the power to kill a person, but when used in the right doses, it could ease pain and bring relief. Those kinds of medicines were described as meek. Sailors would use the word meek to describe a gentle breeze. They would say that the wind was meek. Sailors knew the power that the wind could have. They had all seen the wind in its most destructive form. Jesus' disciples saw powerful winds, like the one that caused them great panic while Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat. But if the wind was light, they'd describe it as meek. Farmers used the word as well. This time it was used to describe a farm animal like a donkey or a horse or an ox that had been broken for use in crop production. The power of that animal had been harnessed, it had been controlled for use by the farmer. So donkeys that were ready to work were described as meek donkeys. Already, I think our English definition of the word meek is is being challenged here, and rightfully so. Blessed are the meek. We'd better understand this. So let's look at this word from another angle. Um, There's something that happens to us from time to time that will help us understand this word meek. Once in a while, the adrenaline medulla produces a hormonal, hormonal cascade that results in the secretion of catecholamines, especially norepinephrine and epinephrine. Right? (laughs) got it (laughs) me neither I think Greek is easier to understand than medical terms in English that mouthful was the technical description for the following human response fight or flight fight or flight and I'm going to ask my assistants if they will come up now and give me a hand demonstrating this for me so Bob and and Marcus come on up and this is how we're going to do it they're going to get on either end of this rope And I want to show you what I'm talking about here because this is a tension that we all know and that we all have to come to terms with. Go ahead and pull it nice and tight there. All right. In our lives, we are faced with danger, with threat. We're faced with stress. And we have a tendency as humans to respond one of two ways. We face the temptation to fight, to stand and defend ourselves, to defend our pride, to protect ourselves. We can do that. We can stand in and fight in the midst of the stress or the problem that's come, the threat that's come. Or we have a temptation to run. We have that temptation to to fly, to get out of there. And sometimes let ourselves get walked all over because that's what we've chosen to do. So either we stand and fight or we run. That's a very common temptation that we're faced with. That's a very human response. In the middle is this position of strength where you stand and decide, I'm not going to give in to either. I'm not going to go and fight. I'm not going to run. I'm going to stand right where I am, control these temptations, control myself and my reactions, and I'm going to turn my eyes to heaven, and I'm going to say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? That is the meaning of the word meek. Meek is this position in the middle of strength where you do not give in to your human emotions, to the temptations to do either of these things, to fight or to fly. You stand in the middle, you turn your eyes heavenward, and you say, God, what do you want me to do? All right, thanks, guys. You can put those down.
I want to give you an example of uh, how this played out and, and how very real this was in the life of Jesus because he was faced from time to time with stresses, with, with threats, with dangerous situations that, the, that he had to respond to. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 26 in your Bibles and I want to show you a, a clear, clear example of how Jesus managed this tension because it was there for him too. Matthew chapter 26 Go down to verse 36. And you're going to see that Jesus is now in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. This is leading up to the time of his crucifixion. Now, um, how much greater a threat could there be than knowing that you're about to be beaten, tortured, and crucified on a cross? So Jesus is facing this very real threat in his life. He's, He's about to die. He's about to suffer and die, and he knows it. He knows what's coming. And this is what happens. Two different things that I want you to see here. Look at verse 36. It says this, And Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now listen, Jesus faced the temptation to run, didn't he? He said to his father, Can you take this from me? Do I really have to go through this? I don't want to face this. Well, obviously, he knew what was coming. He didn't want to face it. So there was that temptation to run. But instead of running, he says, if it's possible, take it from me. But your will be done, Father. Your will be done. Now, go down to verse 47. Listen to the next thing that happens. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss will be the, is the man. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Here's the other end of the spectrum. He could have fought. 
Jesus could have called on his father for more than 12 legions of angels, he says. It wouldn't have taken more than one legion of angels. But he could have called on his father for these angels to come and fight for him. Or he could have backed away from what he had to do. But instead of giving in to either response, Jesus stood in the middle in a position of great strength. And he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. This is what it means to be meek. Jesus had all the power he needed to influence the outcome of things. He could have fought and won on his own. He had the power to walk away from the experience that lay before him. But he didn't. He stood strong in the middle and he turned his eyes upwards. Away from the temptation of the options he had on his own. To me, um, here's the simplest, most memorable way to define what it means to be meek. Controlled power. Controlled power. Meekness has nothing to do with our ability to fight or our our cowardice leading us to run. Meekness is a character quality that is demonstrated in our decision to resist the temptation to fight or run and instead turn heavenward to wait on our Father's instructions. Meekness is trusting God to direct the outcome of events in our lives, not trusting ourselves. We have been given power by our creator. Power to choose, power to influence, power to build up, power to tear down. Over and over in our society, we're told that we are captains of our own destinies. We're told that we have the power to be and do anything we want. And that's true. But God's looking for those who will stand strong, Resisting the temptation to use their power for their own plans or for their own benefit. God is looking for those who will surrender their power to their king. And wait on him for what he wants to do with that power. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. And the blessing here is pretty straightforward. Christ promised that he'll someday return and restore the earth to its perfect state and then he will live here forever with his brothers and sisters, with his bride, the church. He will share the restored earth with the meek. The meek will be joint heirs, brothers and sisters with Christ and inherit the eternal kingdom that Christ restores. That's a promise that you and I can count on. It will happen A.W. Tozer, a great Christian author, wrote this about meekness. He said, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. So what then does it look like to be meek in your everyday life? 
Well, I think there's opportunity to put this principle in practice all around us. We know the fight or flight tension. I think we all do. And I think we can easily see those times when this tension becomes very real. Think about your marriage. When we find ourselves at odds over something with our spouses, it's there. Our self-defense mechanisms kick in and, and we look side to side faced with the decision to stand and fight for our protection, our self-protection, or run away from the issue before us. Both options hang on our own inadequate strength and wisdom. And husbands and wives, I do believe you know what I'm talking about. Tension in our marriage relationships creates opportunities for us to be and become meek people. Use the power God has given you not to fight back and defend your pride, not to run away in spite and leave your spouse to deal with their own pain. Use the power that God has given you to stop the argument long enough for both of you to practice meekness and seek God for his direction in the situation that you're facing. Parents, think about how relevant the meekness principle is to you. We need to stop fighting our kids. And we need to stop running away from our kids. We need to stand strongly in the middle, in that place of controlled power, and call on God for his will to be done. We were never expected to do this on our own. Put this in the context of your workplace. Put this in the context of your school. Where are you leading? We need more meek leaders. I need to be a meek leader. I need to be a meek father, a meek husband, a meek pastor. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, blessed are the meek. The meek are those who will inherit the earth. Those who control their own power long enough to bring it to me and surrender it to me. Those are the people who will inherit the earth. May God shape us into meek people, into the kind of people that he has chosen to live with him forever in the kingdom that he will one day bring to earth. We're going to share communion together now. Um, We're going to take the time to remember the price that Jesus paid to restore us and to bring us back into his father's family He willingly gave his body for us, dying in our place. He willingly allowed his blood to be shed as the final sacrifice, the blood that was capable of washing us clean. And so today, we stand before him as free and forgiven people. He could have fought and avoided the cross. He could have run and avoided the cross. But he didn't. The meek Jesus stood his ground and remained fully devoted to the will of his Father. And as a result of his meekness, you and I have been forgiven and set free. Remember that as you come to participate in communion this morning. I'm going to ask the elders to come now and prepare to serve and the worship team to return to the stage as well. Let's pray as they do. Father, we are so grateful for the depth and richness of your word. 
And we are grateful that you did not leave us on our own to figure all this out. That you've guided us by your Holy Spirit into all truth. And we praise you for that. Father, this morning we look at just one word, at this word, meek. And I ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for not having um, dug into this earlier and discovered what it is that you meant when you said, blessed are the meek. God, help us never to just take something at face value. Help us to, to call on your spirit to guide us to the truth. To call on your spirit to open our eyes so that we can understand. Father, we lay this word meek before you, this idea of controlled power, and ask that you accomplish it in our lives. We ask that you would give us the strength to resist the temptation to run or to fight, to stand and face any and every stress and threat in our lives, to stand firm and call on you and say, Father, whatever your will is, that's what we want to be done. Help us to depend less and less on our own wisdom and our own power and to come much more frequently to that, that middle place, that place of strength where we surrender ourselves to you for your purposes. Father, do in us what you want to do. Accomplish in us what you want to accomplish. Make us meek people. We love you for who you are and we come now to, to remember with great thanksgiving all that your son endured on our behalf. We thank you that his body was bruised and battered and hung on a cross so that, so that we wouldn't have to be. We thank you that his blood was spilled so that we could be forgiven and set free. And we are just that, but not of our own doing. We've been forgiven and set free because it was your will and we surrendered ourselves to that will. Thank you for your saving grace for the power of salvation that you've made available to us. Shape us, Father, more and more, day by day, into the people that you want us to be. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.